Last week's message focused upon what I consider to be some of the hardest words of the New Testament. They are hard to accept, and they are hard to apply. And we wrestled through them, I hope and pray, this morning in our connect groups. What does it mean for us to deny ourselves? What does it mean for us to take up our cross? What does it mean for us to lose our life for Christ's sake and for the Gospels? What does it mean? In Mark 8, 31-38, Jesus lays before his disciples, both then and now, the demands of discipleship. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, if you would enter into his everlasting kingdom, then you must believe in a suffering Messiah. You must embrace the crucified and risen Christ as your only hope, your only Lord, your only reconciliation with a holy God. And you must become his suffering disciple. Beginning in verse 27, Jesus led his disciples north of Galilee to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which sat at the foot of the majestic snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon. And on the way, Jesus had questioned his disciples regarding the prevailing opinion of his identity. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. But what did Peter mean by calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, Mashiach, the Anointed One? As I explained last week, Peter probably had in mind something similar to Jeremiah 23, 5. He probably had in mind this wise and powerful Davidic king who would come at the end of days to restore the kingdom and the glory to Israel and to destroy the wicked and the Gentiles and to drive them from the land and to establish his everlasting kingdom in righteousness and in peace. It is likely that Peter's conception of Jesus as the Messiah did include some notion of Jesus being divine. After all, in Matthew's version of Peter's confession, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's likely that it included some understanding that the Messiah's arrival marked the great and terrible day of the Lord because of his his questioning about Elijah who was to come. There was an expectation that when Elijah came, he was coming as a forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord when God's eschatological kingdom would come, when when final judgment and salvation would be meted out. Peter probably had some, some vague, cloudy notion that this Jesus who was the Christ, he was the promised one, and that with his coming, huge end times things were about to happen. But it is absolutely certain from the context that Peter's description of Jesus as the Christ, his notion of Jesus's messiahship did not include Jesus suffering and dying upon a cross. He had no categories for a suffering and dying messiah. That's why 
Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, and then he immediately, verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus' suffering and death had no place in the disciples' understanding of what he had come to accomplish. So Peter took Jesus aside, took it upon himself to correct Jesus' misunderstanding of his messianic mission, but he was soon severely rebuked and rebuffed. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And immediately Jesus calls his followers together and he explains to them that the path to everlasting glory both for himself and for anyone who would follow after him leads through a cross. If they intend to follow him into the glory of the coming kingdom, they need to follow him on the road of suffering. If anyone would come after me, verse 34, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So First Baptist Nixa, if you would follow Jesus into his everlasting kingdom, you must follow him in this life on his death march. First comes the cross, then comes the crown, both for Christ and for all who would follow him. Those are grim words. I hope we experience something of the weight of those words and the weight of their implication upon our comfortable middle American suburban lives. Both last week and this morning in our small groups as we were discussing them and trying to work out what does that mean What does it mean for my financial decisions? What does it mean for my lifestyle decisions? What does it mean for the way I'm going to spend my time, the way I'm going to spend my money, the way I'm going to expend my life? What does it mean? Grim words. Particularly for those who are familiar with the horrifying spectacle of crucifixion. It was a lot for his disciples to handle, and it's a lot for anyone to handle. And it raises the question, is it worth it? Is denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus to suffering worth it? Is the reward worth the cost? If I go all in with Christ and radically transform my life according to his command and his values, am I going to end up being disappointed? If hypothetically, I give up everything and I make it into the everlasting kingdom, will I look back on my life and regret what I gave up? This is where the rubber meets the road. If I am to follow Christ down the Calvary road, I better believe that Jesus is who I hope he is and that he is able to deliver upon his promise.
That, I think, is the purpose of the transfiguration. Its purpose is to give us a vision of the glory of Christ so that we would know it's worth it. The suffering, the shame, the cross, it's worth it. The transfiguration is like being given a a sneak peek at the final act of a play or the final scene in a movie or the final chapter of a book in order to give us the confidence and the endurance and the encouragement to see the story all the way to the end. Have you ever been in the middle of a book, gotten so attached to the characters, and become so disturbed as to whether or not they were going to make it that you had to flip to the end, make sure everything was going to turn out all right, in order to have the perseverance to go back to the middle and read on? That's what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He's showing them the end of the story, the last chapter of the book, so that when they flip back to their chapter, they'll have the strength and the faith that they need to endure to the end. After the suffering, after the cross, Christ will reign in power and glory, and we will reign with him if, Paul says in Romans 8.18, we suffer with him. So let's look together this morning at this glimpse of the end of the story, this this foretaste of the eternal glory, and let it strengthen us for the suffering that is to come. Because this glimpse of glory, by God's grace, will assure us that it's all worth it. The primary evidence I find that the transfiguration is intended in this way, it's intended to be an encouragement to suffering Christians, an assurance that their sorrow and their tribulation is all worth it, is found in verse 1, this radical 180 degree turn that Jesus takes from verse 38 of chapter 8 to verse 1 of chapter 9. Even though Mark 9.1 begins a new chapter in our English Bibles, there really is no compelling reason nor textual evidence to suggest that it, that it happens in a different context, that the context is somehow different than what we studied last week. You remember that Mark didn't write with chapter divisions. The chapter divisions are completely arbitrary. They were put in between 400 and 800 years ago, and sometimes they got them wrong, like there, like here. So I think Mark 9.1 just continues the discussion and forms the transitional verse into the account of the transfiguration. To those whom Jesus has just told that their path includes a cross, whether it be literal or metaphorical, Jesus gives this astounding promise. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Taste death. That's a Semitism. What does that mean? In the first century Hebrew world, taste death was a, a euphemism for violent death. It alludes to the reality, according to one commentator, of the violent death contemplated in the previous five verses. In other words, Jesus is assuring them that men who follow him will lose their lives for doing it. But, 
some of them will not lose their lives until they see the kingdom after it has come in power and glory. In other words, before they taste death, before they suffer the cross, before they experience the cost of discipleship laid out for them in the previous verses, some of Jesus' disciples will see the kingdom of God come with power. But what on earth does that mean? Well, there really are only three options as far as I see it. Option number one is that Jesus could be referring to his return. When his invisible and heavenly kingdom will be made visible in power and glory in a new heaven and a new earth. That would seem to be the most natural sense of Jesus' words. But there's one big problem with that. It's not true. Nearly two millennia have passed since Jesus uttered these words, and everyone who were there that day, who heard his statement, have tasted death. And the kingdom has not come in power and glory, if by the kingdom and its power and glory, Jesus meant the kingdom as it will be when I return. So I don't think that's an option. Option number two. Jesus could be referring to his imminent death on the cross where he defeated Satan and cast him down and disarmed the rulers and the authorities and established the new covenant in his blood, followed by his resurrection in power and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he sat down on his glorious throne and reigns until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Maybe that's the kingdom and power and glory that Jesus has in mind. That which was accomplished by his death and resurrection. Well, there's a problem with that view as well. So far as we know, everyone who was there that day to whom Jesus spoke these words lived to see the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. We don't have, we don't have any testimony or any evidence of any of Jesus' disciples dying before Jesus himself died. Yet Jesus' words here seem to limit this promise to a privileged few. Some of you who are standing here today, will not taste death until you see the kingdom come with power and glory. So I don't think that's an option. Which leaves us with a third option, which I think is the correct one. I think Jesus is referring to his transfiguration, and I think the few to whom he refers are Peter, James, and John. I think that's exactly what Jesus has in mind. Having just told this crowd, along with his disciples, that following him will cost them their lives as they know it. He then assures them that his kingdom will come with power. It's all going to be worth it. And that there are some of them who will see this guarantee. They will see this foretaste of his kingdom. He then takes some of them, Peter, James, and John, up to the high mountain, shows them his glory and the power of his kingdom, And then Peter, James, and John then relate this event to the rest of the disciples and to the rest of the church after Jesus died and been raised again from the dead. So I think Mark's placement of the account of the transfiguration immediately following this statement, which immediately follows the words of self-denial and cross-bearing and death, makes it plain that The transfiguration is the coming of his kingdom and power that he has in mind. 
In other words, the transfiguration is intended by Jesus both then and now, today, to be a foretaste of the glory and the power of the kingdom that will come when Jesus returns and establishes the new heaven and the new earth. So with this introduction, let's look now at Mark's account of the transfiguration. Mark says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. Three questions I want to answer about this text before we try to make some application to our lives. Number one is, what is this high mountain? Where did this transfiguration take place? Well, the high mountain to which Mark refers is most likely Mount Hermon. It's a majestic peak which dominates the region of Caesarea Philippi. It straddles the border between modern-day Lebanon and Syria, and the range of which it is a part stretches down southwards into Israel, into the territory that is known today as the Golan Heights. Mount Hermon is really an amazing wonder of geography. It rises to well above 9,200 feet, which in itself, if you think about it, you know, that prominence of that peak is, or the elevation of that peak is, is substantially less than, you know, all of the 14ers in Colorado. But what makes it so spectacular is that that's 10,000 feet above the Sea of Galilee, which lies just 20 miles south of it. That's an incredible ascension. The snow melt from Mount Hermon and the surrounding range converged to form the Jordan River. Now, Mount Hermon is not the traditional site for the transfiguration. Traditionally, that site has been Mount Tabor, which is far south in Galilee, south even of the Sea of Galilee. But there are a variety of reasons that this traditional site is unlikely, and and the consensus opinion has shifted in recent generations to Mount Hermon. In all of Palestine, Mount Hermon is quite literally the top of the world. On a clear day, you can see Mount Hermon all the way from Jerusalem. The climb from Caesarea Philippi would have taken all day. So I can imagine, in my mind, Jesus and his three disciples ascending to the summit amid the the residual patches of snow that remain throughout the summer. You can imagine the evening air being crisp and cool and thin, and the sun is beginning to set into the west, descending into the Mediterranean Sea, which you can see clearly from your position. Luke tells us that while Jesus was praying, the disciples became heavy with sleep, likely from the exertion of having climbed the mountain combined with the high altitude and the thin air. And then, sometime well into the night, 
The dazzling starlit sky above Mount Hermon is lit up with the brilliant, refulgent glory of God. I don't think words can do justice to the majesty of this event. The best you can do is just close your eyes and try to imagine it. It was spectacular. Second question. What are we to make of Jesus' two heavenly visitors? Why are they there? Why Why do Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere, suddenly appearing on the mountain to talk with Jesus? Well, if you read ten commentaries, you'll get ten speculations. But the best answer is that Moses and Elijah represent the old covenant. The law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. The old covenant which anticipates and foreshadows and bears witness to and finds its fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you were to look at this event from the whole tapestry of redemptive history... Moses and Elijah appear now at the climax of redemptive history as the key figures of the Old Covenant. All that they did, all that they spoke, all that they promised finds its fulfillment in this beloved Son of the Father and in what He is about to accomplish when He arrives in Jerusalem. And even though the content of their discussion is not recorded by Mark, In Luke's gospel, we read that they spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What did Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talk about? They talked about his death. And how how do we know that that's what they talked about? Because Peter and James and John heard them discussing his death. They spoke with Jesus of his impending sufferings and death, and that's the very truth that the disciples were having such trouble reconciling with their conception of who Jesus should be. Therefore, Moses and Elijah appear as witnesses. To whom? To Peter, James, and John. Of the necessity and the divine plan that is the death of and the sufferings, and the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus isn't going to die as some sort of accident when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to die as the Passover lamb delivered by the Father for the sins of the people. It's God's plan. And Moses and Elijah are there to testify to that fact. In summary, these two men... Moses and Elijah, the foremost figures of the Old Covenant, have appeared on top of this mountain with Jesus to bear witness to the disciples and through them to the church that Jesus' death is God's plan. It is the fulfillment of all that they did and all that they spoke and all that they promised. And that through Jesus' sufferings and death, God will inaugurate the everlasting kingdom. Third question. Why does Peter offer to erect three tents? That seems to come out of nowhere. Seems strange. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Well, Mark simply says he didn't know what else to say. He was so astounded. Most of us, when we don't know what to say, we say nothing. 
when Peter didn't know what to say, he said whatever popped into his head at the time. Well, there's more going on than, than that. Luke's account gives the impression that Peter was making the suggestion as Moses and Elijah were leaving. As if he saw the kingdom slipping away and he was grasping at straws to try to keep it near. Luke says, as the men were parting from him, Peter said, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. I think what Peter is saying reflects another misunderstanding. Instead of viewing this transfiguration as a foretaste of the coming glory that will come through Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter thinks, ah, the kingdom that we've been waiting for is here now. It's being established now. Now, why would he think that? Well, put yourself in his sandals and you'll see it from his perspective. Jesus has just told you That some who are standing there will not taste death until you have seen the kingdom come with power and glory, right? Well, here's the power and glory, therefore, here's the kingdom. Moses and Elijah, the two most prominent figures of the old covenant, have appeared after having been gone for 1,400 years, Moses, and 900 years, Elijah. I mean, if you're Peter, surely that means something significant. Jesus... The master, the teacher, the prophet, the Christ, whom you followed for well over a year by now, suddenly appears as if he were God. His clothes a radiant, intense white, white as light, says Matthew, his face shining like the sun. And then you add to this fact that if you put the calendar on it, it's probably near to the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated the exodus from Egypt, and all the signs seem to confirm Peter's hopes. This is it. And so when Moses and Elijah turn around and start to walk away, he's like, no, 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 don't go. Let's build tents for you. Let's keep it here. Let's not go backwards. Well, regardless, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from inside the cloud thundered out. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let me paraphrase the Lord. Peter, shut up. You're not listening. You don't understand. He's told you the Son of Man must Suffer many things. Be betrayed and rejected by the chief priests and the elders. Be handed over to death. And then on the third day rise again. This is my son. He's been trying to tell you things. Listen to him. Once again, the kingdom will not come until the king suffers as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of his people. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. First comes the death of the Lamb, then comes the coming of the King into His kingdom. The transfiguration, therefore, is just a momentary glimpse of the glory which is to come. 
And that's the point of the conversation which follows as Jesus and his disciples descend from the mountain. The coming king must first become the suffering servant. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of them. So as they were descending Mount Hermon, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one what they had seen until after he had been risen from the dead. This is the first time, by the way, in Mark's gospel that Jesus imposes a time limitation on this command to silence. See, what they have witnessed is important. It's necessary. The church needs to know about this. But they won't understand it any better than Peter had if Peter tells them about it before Jesus has died and been risen from the dead. So he says, don't tell anyone until after I've been raised. The news of Christ's impending resurrection continued to mystify the disciples, however. They they just didn't have any categories. They, They could not understand the suffering and death of Jesus. If Jesus is going to be raised, that implies that he's going to die. But why will he die? We just don't get it. We don't understand it. See, the doctrine of the resurrection on the last day had been firmly established in the Jewish mind for at least two centuries, particularly in Pharisee-dominated Galilee. It wasn't that they didn't understand that there was a resurrection to come on the last day. Rather, they just didn't understand what the death and resurrection had to do with Jesus. They had no categories for a suffering and dying Messiah. So this is what prompts their question regarding the coming of Elijah. Why do the scribes then say that Elijah must come first? I mean, you can see them trying to put it together. It's almost painful at times, but remember, they don't have the benefit of the finished New Testament. They've just seen Elijah on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. They know from their times in the synagogue that the scribes teach that before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah will appear to restore Israel to righteousness. Where's that found? Well, it comes from Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Through the last prophet of the Old Testament, God had promised before the day of the Lord, that great day of salvation and judgment, before that day comes, I will send Elijah back to you. Why? Because you're not prepared to meet your God. And he will come, and he will bring you to repentance. He will restore you to righteousness. He will prepare you for my coming on the great and awesome day of the Lord. So for the disciples who've just seen Elijah, they're thinking, 
Well, the day of the Lord is, is now imminent. So why are you talking about dying? It just, just doesn't make sense. Jesus responds by referencing another scripture, also from the prophets, one that speaks of the necessary sufferings of the Son of Man. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. See, Jesus first affirms that their their eschatology, their view of the way things are going to play out, is correct insofar as it goes. Elijah does come first to restore all things. That's true. You've gotten that part right. Elijah does come first to bring Israel to repentance ahead of the coming day of the Lord. But there's another strain of prophecy that you've missed altogether. And that's the strain that says that also in this coming day of the Lord, there will be a suffering servant. I think what he has in mind is Isaiah 53. But how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things? and be rejected and treated with contempt. Hear these words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, Jesus is telling his disciples that they should not only expect Elijah to come as the forerunner of the day of the Lord, but they should also expect the Messiah to come and to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. Both are promised in the prophets. Then Jesus does something that blew their minds. He says, Elijah has already come, but it was not the Elijah that you expected. See, the disciples have just seen Elijah upon the Mount of Transfiguration, but according to Jesus, that's not the Elijah spoken of in the book of Malachi. The Elijah of Malachi's prophecy, the forerunner of the Messiah, the one destined to bring Israel to to repentance and to prepare her for the coming of the Lord, was John the Baptist, the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Matthew 17, 13. And Jesus says, oh, and by the way, John suffered as well. You see a theme here? If they do to the forerunner of the Messiah whatever they please, what do you think they're going to do to the Messiah himself? Once again, Jesus is establishing that suffering is part of God's plan. The suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of the forerunner of the Messiah, and the suffering of all the Messiah's people. In order to enter into the everlasting kingdom of God, you must believe in a suffering Messiah and you must become his suffering disciple. That much was clear from last week's message. The road to glory is the path of suffering. 
First comes the cross, then comes the crown, both for Jesus and for all who would follow him into his everlasting kingdom. But in order to bear the cross, you must be convinced that the crown awaits you. You must be convinced that the one who calls you to suffer with him and for him is the sovereign and omnipotent king who is able to deliver on his promise and bring you into his everlasting kingdom. And that's the point of this week's message. That's the point of the transfiguration. You cannot see Jesus transfigured in all of his glory, his clothes becoming a radiant white, his face shining like the sun. You cannot hear the voice of the divine majesty saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and not be convinced that he somehow can't keep his promise. Therefore, if we're going to follow him on the road to suffering, we have to see his glory. That's why Jesus instructed his disciples to tell what they had seen after he had been raised from the dead. We must see what they saw so that we can be equipped to suffer as they suffered and to persevere as they persevered. Let me give you an example of this from the scriptures. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering. Never has a man, apart from Christ, suffered more. He knew from firsthand experience what it was to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. He knew what it was to lose his life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. He walked the Calvary road. In 2 Corinthians, he runs down the list of his sufferings in response to charges from certain Jews who were questioning his apostleship and challenging his authority. Listen to what he wrote. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure of me of the anxiety for all the churches. Suffering. I just want you to focus in for a second. Let's make this as real as we can. I want you to focus in there on five times I received the 40 lashes less one. Five times. Think about the first time that that happened. You remember these were, these were a, a, a leather whip with nine lashes on it, and in the end of those nine lashes, there were usually embedded shards of metal or bone. And 39 times, he would be lashed, and it would, it would rip the skin off of his back. You imagine that. You imagine how long it took him to heal from that. Think about what his back looked like six months after that first time. 
just a massive scar tissue. Then it happened again. How long did that take to heal? Then it happened again and again and again. Now, put yourself in Paul's situation the night before that's going to happen. You're shackled in a jail cell. You know that the next day they're going to do it to you for the third time in your life, the fourth time in your life, the fifth time in your life. You know that it's coming. How do you endure? Well, let's ask him. Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. He kept before him the glory that was coming. He had seen glory. The same Jesus who appeared to Peter, James, and John had appeared to him on the Damascus road. He had seen that glory. And any time he faced that coming suffering, he put it on the scale. He put Jesus' glory on the one side and his sufferings on the other. And every time, he said, I can do this. Come what may, Paul was going to follow his king into the everlasting kingdom. This morning, through Peter's testimony, through Mark's record, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have seen what Peter, James, John, and Paul, and countless other suffering Christians have seen. The glory of Christ, the King. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of the divine Son of God burst forth in blinding, refulgent splendor. And the glimpse of that glory is the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee that, yes, it's all worth it. Persecution is worth it. 39 lashes is worth it. Cancer is worth it. Poverty, for the sake of Christ, is worth it. Death is is worth it. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that glory. Now, how important is it for you to see that glory? It's the only thing that will carry you to glory from your hospice bed. No other way you're going to make it in faith. When everything else in this life is being stripped away from you in the most painful fashion imaginable, how are you going to persevere to the end in faith and joy? You have to have seen the majestic glory. And Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 says, We saw it. And so have you. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This morning, God has been preparing you for suffering by showing you the glory of Christ. Two ways. Number one, the preached word. And number two, bread and a cup. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, 
When he's eating the Last Supper with his disciples, he says, I'm not going to eat this again until I eat it with you in the coming kingdom. So the Lord's Supper is another foretaste of that glory to come. It is there to undergird you for your present and future sufferings. So it's not an empty prayer that we pray when we sing, show us Christ. It's absolutely necessary. We need to see his glory. 